Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Filmed in Canada, a podcast about Canadian movies. I'm Alexander Cairns, and I'm joined again today by... Will Ross, a filmmaker. And Devin Scott, a person. <laughs> People and filmmakers alike. Mm-hmm. Um, last time we spoke about your own creative output, specifically the documentary We Three Heathens and your short that played at VIF last year, Lightguard, mm-hmm. and um, wanted to have you back in the booth to discuss a couple documentaries that you had recommended to me that we should watch and discuss, mm-hmm. those two documentaries being Warrendale and A Married Couple, directed by Alan King. Um, I'm trying to remember the exact years they were from. I think 1967 and 1970. 69, I think. Was, was 60s and 70s, anyway. Yeah. Married Couple feels kind of 70s, but I, but it, I think it is maybe 69. It, yeah. I, it is 70s. I know Married yeah. Couple is 70s. It is, okay, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah so a couple older Canadian documentaries, I guess they these would be the oldest films that we've discussed on the show thus far. Yeah, we've mostly been talking about more recent, not not necessarily new release stuff, but more recent films, so it's good to dig deep into the archives and discover what was happening in Ontario <laughs> in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. So, when uh, you guys want to take a stab at introducing, I guess we'll we'll start with the married couple, if if that makes sense. That that was the first one we watched. Yeah, yeah, we we watched them out of uh, chronological order. Thankfully. Um, yeah, yeah, we watched them in order of emotional intensity, which is quite something because a married couple is a film where Alan King sort of gets this shockingly intimate uh, portrait of uh, this real-life couple who are sort of in their early 30s and late 30s, maybe early 40s, respectively. Um, And this couple is just very clearly sort of coming apart at the seams where they sort of have a general free-spirit attitude about, uh, you know, they'll often walk around just in their underwear while their kid's in the house and obviously a documentary crew is present. Um, well, not, not even just underwear. Like some, uh, sometimes, just completely naked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes <laughs> just completely naked, and they'll just they handle about. Utterly unaware of it. It's yeah. just amazing. And at the same time, there's this sort of domestication, this mutual domestication, where they have the kid, they have the dog. They often talk about, well, we need to get. Uh, they argue about getting something practical, like a new stove, versus getting something impractical. Uh, or it's argued impractical, like a harpsichord. <laughs> and so there's this constant tension that plays out through the film, and you get the sense that these people are sort of uh, children of 60s ideals and, and some of the sort of forward-thinking, free-spirited ideals of the 60s and the sort of way that it fell apart and that they couldn't reconcile it with aging and with uh, the sort of American vision of a domesticated lifestyle. And so because of this, their house is just in this quiet and sometimes very loud turmoil where they argue constantly. They'll, they'll, they'll throw passive-aggressive jabs at each other. Um, and, and at a couple of points, they even get 
physical with each other. And yeah, that got kind of scary. Yeah, and you think constantly, my God, how did he get access to this? And the way he got access was what we see in the film is actually after a few months of uh, Alan King uh, having lived with those subjects, and we just get the tail end of it. But even was he filming the whole time? Uh, no, he started filming after living with them for like two or three months, I think. Yeah, yeah, he got used to them. And so what we see is actually the product of a lot of time getting them used to his presence. But even then, I mean, I think anyone would agree that what you see and their, their lack of apparent self-consciousness on camera is shocking. And even if they are self-conscious or even if they're actors, I, I would say that um, it's an extraordinary act of disclosure either way. I think um, it's, it speaks to the importance of picking your subject when you do a documentary, right? Like, uh, you know, my guess is, you know, he just had an instinct that, oh, these, these people are going to open up. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's how these things can start. Yeah, you can certainly imagine a much lesser version of this occurring yeah. that is either either the people are like, way worse and it's violent and they basically just out of ethical responsibility have to like stop making the film mm-hmm. and, and like get, try and get these people help but they're sort of just on the brink of of insanity that, that yeah. you can justifiably continue filming them without feeling that you're like complicit in, in their destruction but then, or, or it could be on the opposite end of the spectrum where, you know, the, it's a couple that has issues, but they don't flare up in the same ways. And, and there isn't the level of absurdity that I found. Yeah. Which is especially with, you mentioned the... Um, Red briefs? Yeah, the, the, the costuming choices <laughs> yeah. that are just bizarre and absurd. Yeah. And even, even the, the wife as well. Do you remember their names? I, I, I mentioned earlier. Billy. I don't remember names. Yeah, Billy and something along like Alexandria or Anastasia or... I I can't remember, no. Yeah. I I remember the shit in the floor. Anyway, um, we'll call them the husband and the wife and the child and the dog. Um, Even the wife, like, I remember at one point it looked like she was wearing like like a doily pattern curtain, or not curtain, but like a like a table dressing almost and like just the fucking weird shit that they wear and it just brought this level of absurdity to it where even though you're watching this at times horrific relationship just crumbling yeah. it was laughable yeah. like it, we were laughing throughout a lot of it yeah. because it does feel ridiculous yeah I just even like his mustache and his glasses. Like he looked like <laughs> yeah. he looked like the dad from Calvin and Hobbes. I mean, yeah. Like he looked like he's the most nevish guy imaginable, mm-hmm. just trying to be you know threatening at certain points. And you're like, oh. <laughs> and he's just constantly exploding into anger at the at the slightest provocation. Yeah, there's a late scene where um, where they're sort of trying to have a rational conversation about their problems in their relationship. And um, he provokes her to like. He, he, yeah, he says like she she sort of says uh, like invites him to say something he doesn't like about her, and so he says it um, in in some elaboration, and she gets annoyed with it in some ways, but it, it stays fairly on the level. And yeah, then, he allow she allows him to say his piece. Yeah, yeah. And then he says, "Okay, now say something you don't like about me." And she responds, and you know, she maybe she she emphasizes she overemphasizes it a little bit, but she she d- 
doesn't go any further than he did. And it, it's about it's about him not picking up his shoes from the middle of the floor. Yeah. And as she saved this, he finally like gets up, loses it, grabs this package from a nearby dresser and slams it down on the bed and <laughs> shouting. What, what the fuck is this doing here? Yeah. <laughs> That's how I feel about the shoes. The way I feel about this is the way you feel about and, my shoes but, on the and, floor. And barely, yeah. barely after even elaborating on it for like 30 seconds like she yeah. he gets immediately in face and, yeah and so there's this imbalance that you see I, I think I saw somewhere it described as um, it, it's it's I guess, I guess it's a unique point in time in history and and I and in a lot of instances on this podcast I'm sort of stretching beyond my bounds of historical knowledge or <laughs> just general understanding of how the world works but my perception at least of this point in time around the 60s and 70s is that um, yeah the domestic lifestyle was sort of crumbling and and falling apart and and we we get to see this happening in a way in Mm -hmm. in this documentary and um, a lot of the arguments that are taking place are over the 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 imbalance of power in their relationship and the idea that the the husband requires his wife to be subservient and yeah, to, to work. yeah and to and to provide the car when it's required yeah and um, cook meals take care of the child you know run errands but not when it impedes his ability to make a living and even even though it doesn't his seem ability to be late to work when he sees yeah her. yeah yeah he, he makes either. a big long argument about how like it's none of her business when when he chooses to be late. when he chooses to be late but she should still drive him to work every day yeah and and she's concerned about their livelihood because she doesn't work he does but he yeah. he doesn't seem to have any regard for his professional life mm-hmm. and uh, even th- there's one scene where where he's at his office and he's like getting he's he's like getting frustrated because someone isn't recognizing the the his his perceived intelligence and like the quality of his work. He's that's like, my don't, don't, three right. I'll have you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's like trying to get this other person to recognize him for what he's doing, but he's not getting it. And so clearly he's he's unsatisfied in his ability to. You know, be a man and mm-hmm. and have a respectable job. I don't even know where he works. I think it's a newspaper or something like that, mm-hmm. and or he does some sort of copy work or advertising, something like that. Yeah. And um, you know, so he so he takes it out on his wife at home, and yeah. and and you know, she's not going to put up with it. Yeah, uh, and it's 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 again, it's a great example of of picking a good subject because I mean, it's. A matter of sort of these vignettes suggest so much all their own, and there's so much contention within and conflict within those the vignettes that sort of stack up to make the film that you don't need to have uh, sort of elaborate editing patterns to suggest meaning. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some terrific shots, and I don't want to take away from the film's form, formal benefits, but I don't think anyone would call the editing one of its strongest qualities. And in fact, sometimes the film's pacing lags a little bit, or or there's one or two scenes that are maybe redundant or don't tell us as much. There's a sort of it, there's a sort of sequence where the family has an outing where they go out in a marsh naked and then they sort of like go and sleep in their bed and it's this little family outing that doesn't really say much other than oh look this family has moments of tenderness within their sort of shamelessness. Yeah, as well. I think that 
serves to demonstrate their attempts at salvaging what they have, but yeah. then it immediately gets back into yeah. the chaos. And, and that scene moves a little bit slow, and, and it doesn't it doesn't capsize the film by any means, but it's just an example of how the editing isn't totally its strongest suit, but the one image that does stick really strongly is sort of this, you can see the reeds in the foreground and then them wading through these golden sunlight lit uh, waters in the background. And so there's some terrific camera work, but the thing that stands out more than anything is just these long, passionate, just just soul-caving-in rows. Yeah. Well, one thing I noticed about um, King is that what even, even like, and I know, like, you know, the Verite direct cinema directors were often known for their very long takes and kind of, you know, respecting the, you know, the, the integrity of the so, you know, time. Um, and, I, not, not to cut you off, but... Um, to a certain extent, I don't even really know what Verite Direct blah 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 means. Oh, so maybe if you could, okay, if, so if you could elaborate in in brief. Crash course. Yeah, it's 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 a really hairy subject because the two terms often get used interchangeably, um, even though that they're two quite distinct movements. Um, one, and they're almost like sister movements. Where Verite was essentially, you know, kind of a new documentary in the '60s in Europe. Um, particularly France um, and then uh, direct cinema was almost the Canadian slash American North American equivalent yeah. um, and and they both have somewhat different kind of trends but very different trends I would say it, 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 there's a lot of overlap and I think I see a lot of verite ideals in a lot of kind of films called direct cinema and vice versa which it, it ends up really it's, it's a big soup and yeah. but the hard line definition between the two would be they both use uh, handheld documentary camera work and portable sound recorders in order to capture the attempt is to capture day-to-day life or small moments. but in the case of direct cinema there's more of an emphasis of standing back from your subject and allowing it to play out and and cinema verite on the other hand attempts to provoke the subject with the filmmaking apparatus um, and more consciously include itself as part of the landscape. Landscape, and that's the so they're two very different ethnographic uh, effects, uh, ethnographic approaches. Um, like the Ur kind of uh, cinema verite film is probably Chronicle of the Summer, yeah. uh, in which the filmmakers literally confront people on the streets. Yeah, <laughs> because the idea is that by um, highlighting the presence of the filmmaker, you uh, emphasize the realness of the film versus direct cinema. You know, example of direct cinema is you know uh, King, where uh, essentially we feel like we're observing things and the filmmakers are seeing another way. The fly-on-the-wall yeah. approach is versus, how it's often shorthanded, yeah. Versus fly-in-the-soup for Verite. Yeah. yeah. And... Although uh, King does get involved, you know, like in, uh, in Warndale, he has to intervene at one point. Yeah. But in, in the case of uh, a married couple, um, there's, there's that scene where he is so angry at her for not just getting up and doing the errand now, when mm-hmm. it's not an urgent errand by any means, that he grabs her by the arm and physically forces her up and along the hallway, and King, uh, or whoever his cameraman was, gets up and sprints over to, in order to catch the action. And there's yeah. a moment while he's forcing her through the door where you're right on the edge of, like, my God, like, should, should, he, should he be intervening? And, and, it, yeah. and it's just this sort of, like, it's, it's a five, maybe five-second stretch where it's like, should this guy be dropping the camera and running over and helping, right? Yeah. And then it's over and, like, that uncomfortable. But it remind, it's one of the few moments in the film that really reminds you, like, that this is 
something that's being observed by a documentary crew and that yeah. the situation is more complex than it's than sort of the surface level uh albeit still very complex uh marital dispute going on yeah the the one thing that i found kind of i don't know if unsettling is the right word or um just uh, an interesting juxtaposition i guess was there's a couple sort of establishing shots as he's walking into his office and they're like these crane shots almost yeah. where yeah. It, like it was kind of, it was a weird moment where, where as you're describing this kind of direct cinema idea where everything is, is being observed and, and it's all handheld and whatever. But then there are these moments where it becomes more cinematic and, and it, I feel like it works in, in, the context of the film because it, it, it kind of creates a more it creates more of a narrative feel to it I think yeah I, I, I read those moments as sort of one they sort of stitch things together two uh, sort of satirizing typical documentary depictions yeah of the home up to that point yeah I see, yeah, I see. And, and, it, and I guess yeah. yeah yeah the music as well and then it and then it uh, like when they're driving out to the to that lake and whatever yeah those moments kind of they, Almost they, comically they, tranquil. Yeah, yeah. That, no, that's a good way of putting it. And um, I sort of, uh, I was sort of happy to do with on, on the long takes uh, in terms of cinema verite and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, direct cinema in this case. Um, in that, I think a lot of kind of you know, kind of documentary directors in the sixties, especially, kind of really respected the integrity of the long take. As in, because as soon as you edit it, you're editorializing. Of course, by pointing to camera or something, you're editorializing based on what you point at. But um, it kind of took away one layer of that. And I think Alan King was pretty extreme in that regard, where he would often let scenes like there's a, a lot of the set pieces in a married couple play out without any cuts at all. Yeah. Um, and very, very difficult to do that in documentaries. Oh, it's incredibly difficult. Like, yeah. look like at Witch Me Humans where it's like, you know, it's like you, don't, you don't get to, you don't get to make every moment deliberately interesting. You have to hope that every yeah. moment will be interesting and, and I, make it interesting in the moment. I think a lot of the best paced, paced scenes in that movie are the ones where he just doesn't cut. And it's yeah. amazing because yeah. just the tension in the air is enough to keep you going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it lends to the idea that they're not, like trying to stop the conversation so that they can then reposition the camera or whatever. Like it, yeah. it makes it feel more more real that it's all it's spontaneous. Yeah. His films look very messy, um, and I know that's and I think it's just because he doesn't prize quote unquote nice composition above essentially capturing the moment well. Yeah. Um, where uh, you know a lot of documentary filmmakers will. You know, like you know, like the Maisel's brothers, you know, like we just had amazing instincts for getting in the perfect place, so the, the perfect composition forms. But uh, King prioritizes that less, I think, than more yeah. just being in being in the thick of it. And it's good to it's a good way to ca- it's good to capitalize on your audience's. I mean, because the for example, there's the Dardens, um, and especially in their more recent work. Um, Dardens f- being 21st century uh, fiction filmmaker, French fiction filmmaker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Belgian. Um, Belgian. Bel- uh, oh, they're Belgian. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. oh. <laughs> <laughs> Fred took a shot, man. Yeah. But anyway, the Dardens are these two uh, Belgian uh, fiction filmmakers, contemporary to our time, and. Um, they sort of emphasize a, an almost accidental seeming handheld aesthetic and, and sort of quote unquote naturalism in the performances. And you could sort of make the argument, um, well, what makes this not inherently better than 
a documentary where, you know, you're never going to get such tight. I mean, they, they, the movements seem accidental, but they're actually extremely tight. Compositions are extremely tight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the mise-en-scene is, is crammed fucking full and it is always on message. Yeah. Um, but King really, and, and sort of emblematic of the direct cinema movement to an extent, takes advantage of the fact that with direct cinema in the documentary, with documentaries, your audience is aware that what they're seeing was not rehearsed. And that lack of rehearsal almost makes the looseness and the quote-unquote flaws of the composition a merit, where they lend to the immediacy, they lend to the tension of knowing that the filmmaker is capturing all this and has to capture it on the fly and that what they're seeing is transpiring in real time. Yeah. Now that has its own pitfalls, but and it's I mean, easy and really powerful too is being able to rehearse things with the audience believing it's not rehearsed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But a married couple is really, really great at exploiting the sense that you're living with this couple. Now, if I found out today that, uh, like I, after this podcast, if I, you know, somebody sent me an article or something saying, Hey, it turns out, you know, bombshell Alan King in a new interview says a married couple was entirely staged and acted. I'm not sure I would be less impressed with the film not because I mean it would seem hypocritical where um, well but will uh, you know you would know you're not seeing events actually transpiring actually in real time and that tension's not there right. but the knowledge that it was deliberately crafted adds a new layer to it and it becomes a commentary almost upon that mode of filmmaking so yeah yeah um, I just think it's a terrific film sorry yeah I would agree wholeheartedly. On the podcast, we like to give leaf ratings. Oh, how many? What type of leaves are we rating? Uh, they're maple leaves. Okay. Yeah, and they're leaves, not leaves. All right. So, how many leaves do I give it? Out of thirty-seven. I want these space for Warrendale, so I'll give it twenty-eight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a nice even number. Um, <laughs> That's easy to compute in your mind. With. Yeah, I'll go ahead and bump it up to twenty-nine. 29. Uh, but yeah. That last leaf is really dry. And yeah. <laughs> I think 29 is a good, yeah. good rating. Okay. Good, solid rating. Um, yeah, so let's just jump right into Warrendale then. Warrendale. Yeah. 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 I remember how we got onto watching both of these films, but um, spoiler think, alert, the, the, my leaf rating for Warrendale is going to be higher because that's that's the one where I thought, like, oh, Warrendale would be a great film to talk about. Yeah, I think you suggested that initially, and then uh, Devin said, you know, why not talk about a few of them just so we get a better context yeah. kind of thing. So anyway, if, if you guys want to, one of you guys want to sort of introduce what's going on in Warrendale. I married couples. Yeah. Yeah. Take I can, yeah, I can give a much more depressing one. Um, Warrendale is essentially a, um, a film about a kind of a prototype uh, home for mentally disturbed, as they say, young children. So it's... Um, it's and the film essentially follows the caregivers of the children as they administer care to these children who are essentially like time bombs. Uh, and they go off multiple times throughout the film and it is harrowing. And a lot, a huge amount of the film is essentially these massively long set pieces where we see like kind of seemingly innocuous situations escalate into these explosions of screaming and 
just mortal terror and uh, anger and sorrow and anger, anger senseless ang- literally like senseless anger and sorrow yeah. and um, and the film kind of culminates uh, with what happens is one of the um, the, uh, the the more prominent uh, staff members of the facility I think she was um, the chef yeah the chef mm-hmm. um, who we see once or twice um, she dies of natural causes um, and the kind of climax of the film, although interesting enough, this was filmed quite early in the in, in the production, um, is uh, essentially the uh, the, car- the caregivers meeting, talking about how to administer or to deliver the news to the kids, um, uh, mentioning that mentioning that there's no way to do it essentially, yeah. and uh, then delivering the news to the kids, and what ensues is at least fifteen or twenty minutes of. Um, unmitigated terror staring um, death right in the fucking yeah, t- face to the point where Alan Clark himself has to intervene Alan King, Alan King. Oh, yeah. I always mix up the names I'm so sorry um, Alan <laughs> King Alan Clark Alan Clark is a uh, noted director of uh, TV movies uh, at the BBC uh, from I think the late 60s through the late 80s uh, hugely highly respected the BFI is doing a, a big retrospective and box set of him soon and cool. I recommend checking him out Anyway, anyways, the film the film kind of climax you know, during the climax Alan King himself has to intervene and we see him on screen which I thought you know I only noticed the second time even. and uh, yeah, it, it's it, it, watching it nowadays I find it found really interesting because um, the film has in the time it was made um, this was kind of the forefront of care for young kids yeah. and a lot of these um, techniques are have kind of been uh, kind of swept under the rug of history uh, mm-hmm. In a few ways, some many of the things the caregivers do are still in use today, and we kind of don't hear about them. Uh, but a lot of the kind of things almost seem like arcane now. Yeah, like, the most they, prominent is the holding technique. Yeah, which yeah. Uh, so it, it, I would say that's the most prevalent image in the film. Almost yeah. that they they in order to restrain these kids and allow them. I guess I guess the 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 um, um, the sort theory. of scientific theory behind it is that by constraining them and like kind of holding their arms and legs and cradling them almost, that they're able to express their anger and their emotions without actually lashing out against anyone and causing any harm to other people, which I guess they would be prone to do. Yeah, exactly. And this is um, this is not a technique that's in common use today by any means. Uh, first of all, because it's so unreliable and so unsafe and almost the sort of theory is that when they hold them that closely, the kids are allowed to struggle. Yeah. It's just that if they're being held quote unquote properly, then they're not going to be able to cause any damage or harm. Right. Uh, that assumes that the adults are stronger than the kids though, which is often not the case. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and one of the sort of, I, to me, one of the themes of the film is the sort of failure of this idea in that, um, in the, the final sequence is just total, Bedlam when these kids find out where it's sort of like you put out one fire and another one starts immediately and yeah. you cannot contain these kids that way physically like you just you can't do it right it's just it's just total chaos you cannot com- you cannot contain the raging emotions well and it seems to work or I guess work in quotations when uh, when it's more of a one on one 
dynamic, but like you mm-hmm. said, in that in that final scene, yeah. all of them are feeding off of each other, and so when one calms down, the other explodes, and there's only so many people that are there to restrain them, and yeah. it just yeah, it doesn't it's not effective. Yeah. yeah, and it's you see a negotiation right before they tell the kids this, where um, one of the caregivers on the phone says, right, "Should we let?" them film this yeah and it's a it's really it's the only moment in the film where the documentary crew is really explicitly acknowledged um and then because they say yes to that what you end up seeing is i think one of the most extraordinary like pieces of documentary about uh, uh child care probably the most single most extraordinary piece of footage of documentary filmmaking i've ever seen about child care um, there's so many conflicting emotions. There's such a mixture of tenderness and violence on both parties. Uh, yeah. ends. that said, before that scene, you get a fair number of scenes that are all tenderness and a fair number of scenes that are also all violence or all chaos. Um, one thing I really like about the film though, is that it's extremely warm to all of all the subjects mm-hmm. in an odd way where I think like, like the techniques in the film were controversial in the day, hence the you know, sort of prototype. Um, and even nowadays they seem archaic and kind of you know almost brutal. Uh, but the film uh, it seems like almost aware of all those uh, all those kind of factors. And it's it's like what I kind of get out of it. I've, I've seen it twice, and both times what I got out of it most was that it's a really um, sympathetic portrait of people in a certain place in time and history trying to do what's right. Um, trying to do their best um, based on the knowledge they have at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really moves me more than just about anything in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, do, I, I, just, I just love how King in this film, I think in very couple, he's a little judgmental, but in, uh, in, in this film there's just no judgment at all and only just respect for everyone there, even the kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really thought that was quite remarkable. Yeah. I, I, the thing that gets me most about the film, it, I mean, is that final sequence. Um, uh, I don't want to talk too much about the final sequence at the expense of what comes before, because there's like these intimate conversations where a, a child will be softly crying while the caregiver, um, and she, and they there's a line that's like sometimes the the kid says the caregiver says like it's important to talk about your feelings and to like accept your feelings on a certain level and, and to discuss the feelings and the kids say yeah, but sometimes dealing with those feelings hurts too much. Mm-hmm. And um, that's sort of what the film's about. But the, the thing about the climax that always gets me is it is such bedlam in that room. Like, there's kids just screaming, like, just can't handle it, just the senselessness of it. Right before that scene, you get two characters, ta- two caregivers uh, talking to each other, and one of them says something to the effect of, like, how the hell are you supposed to you know, tell kids this sort of thing and like, and, and try to comfort them when you don't even know what the hell is going on yourself because the chef died with no warning. She was perfectly healthy. She died suddenly in her sleep, no health mm-hmm. problems whatsoever that they knew about beforehand. And the other caregiver just does barely, you can tell he barely knows what the same face says. Well, you tell them it's a very difficult thing. But then when you get in that room and those kids are screaming, the caregivers are rushing and there's sweat, pouring down the faces of the caregivers and there's tears just flowing from those kids eyes it's like this is like this is it's no longer about kids in a mentally disturbed uh a caregiving facility um trying to cope with emotions and dealing with new techniques and and these sorts of things is not just about that to me that scene is about a bunch of people stare death right in the fucking face and don't and 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 
confront the full horror of it. And these kids don't have the walls or the filters or the coping mechanisms to deal with that horror. Mm -hmm. They're just receiving the pure horror, the arbitrary horror of death. Mm -hmm. And it just bursts out of them just with these screams and this thrashing. Yeah. Um, that's what gets me about the film is, is it, it becomes like, it's an almost abstract expression of the horror of mortality as experienced by kids who have never, presumably never dealt with it on such a sudden and arbitrary level before. Well, it, it, the way you say, use the word abstract, it, it, to me, the whole, the whole film kind of feels like an abstraction in a way because mm-hmm. you don't really get, get any understanding of why these kids are here yeah. or what their backgrounds are or anything like that. You just understand they're in this place, they're disturbed, and so you just see their raw emotions and you see the raw tenderness of the caregivers. And, and it, so you're just seeing these expressions of emotion out of context. And so it's just, an, yeah, it, it, it's an interesting evolution of emotion that you're, you're just, you're able to experience directly rather than when you know the reason for why someone is angry or happy or sad, yeah. it's, it's easier to understand. But, but when you're just experiencing the emotion itself, it becomes a much more um, powerful experience. I would say. Yeah, yeah. The opening shot kind of goes some ways towards that. And uh, a married couple. And, what, what was the opening shot? Yeah, the, a married couple and um, and Warrendale have very similar opening shots. Where a married couple starts on a shot of the street and there are cars driving up and down it and then it pans over to sort of the house that everyone will be starting at and this is all at night and then we cut into the house. And Warrendale starts on this wide of, uh, by contrast, it's very, very sunny. And and to add to the idea of abstraction, it's like the camera's like got a lens flare across it for the entire shot and like it's bleached out and and there's sort of these roads and cars are driving along the roads. And then we zoom in on one car and it turns a corner and goes into the facility and then we zoom into the facility. Yeah. Um, And then we cutting so the camera's on the ground at this facility similarly. and that shot, uh, those two shots are sort of similar in what they express. Um, and they really point to uh, the idea of, of trying to make universal these very specific places and the things that they document. Um, and then Warrendale, even more than a married couple, though, uh, like you said, does so little to... to ground us in backstories and really we barely even get to know individual personalities very much there's a couple that Mm -hmm. really stand out but we don't get to know much more than very surface elements of people Mm -hmm. and they're much more defined by their attempts to interact with each other than by the um the singularity of their gestures there's you know singularity as 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 an well, no one else would do this. That is this character. Mm-hmm. It's more defined by the accumulation of caregiving over the course of what seems like an hour and a half, two hours, three hours by the end of <laughs> yeah. the explosion. It's like, it was like a hundred minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and again, I, I would say that it's not a, a perfect film by any means. Some of the pacing's a little bit wonky because it becomes a bit of a string of sort of disconnected uh, vignettes that kind of accumulate, but not in a way that really 
tie together where you go, ah, that happened, therefore this we see this scene next. Mm-hmm. Um, but each scene, pretty much every scene, is really, really compelling stuff, just taken on its own rights, and enough so that we like that sense of fatigue never really has a chance to majorly detract from the film, and in some ways it even turns it into an asset with that last marathon of pain. <laughs> but it's such a great example of taking the things about direct cinema that it was capable of, which are going into an environment and holding the camera until something amazing happens mm-hmm. and using that and simple selections of shots and uh, onset decisions of where the camera is pointing and even where the microphone is pointing and turning it into something very personal and meaningful. Yeah. I can't add to that. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I should be making this discussion more of an open circuit. How's that? How should I be making it open circuit? Well, uh, oh, just because you've been talking a lot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, that's totally fair because you seem to have a lot to say. <laughs> that's good. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess for me, this one... Mm-hmm. Like I said, because you're just kind of observing emotions, like it, it's it, there's not a whole lot I can really feel like I can latch onto as a discussion point. Almost like it's just mm-hmm. kind of it, it's it's this very pure thing. It's not to not to get too deep dish, uh, yeah. but it's almost the same thing as like how long can you spend discussing an experimental film, right? Have you? Get, I don't think you've had wavelengths. Like you no. on the One day you guys are going to do Wavelength, right? And I don't envy you talking about that for an hour, not because it's nope. not an intensely interesting film, but because yeah. you have to get real intertextual and real yeah. academic to really dive and into I the I feel like thing. we'd probably have to do a lot of research to like talk mm-hmm. about how it was created and totally. all those things that we typically don't put a lot of effort into. Yeah. <laughs> because why I because when, there's, when there's a story... It's very easy to say, well, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and you know, this was kind of stupid. This was really awesome. Like, it's easier to break apart narrative than it is. Yeah, just pure emotional craziness. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that might be interesting to tackle is the artifice of Warndale because uh, I did I I did do some reading on it, and uh, one thing I found interesting was that (laughs) is that he um, uh, Alan King replaced every single light bulb in that entire facility with his own mm. much brighter ones, which is oh, really? something that you know, I'm pretty familiar with because that's one of the bread and butters of documentary filmmaking is, you know, you have a little fluorescent bulb, you take it out, you make it, put a big old 150 watt bulb in there yeah. because, um, and, uh, sort of, uh, I think kind of one of the interesting things about any direction, especially even more than cinema verite is that, um, it does all it can to, uh, Hide its or kind of obscure any any sense of artifice, but it's always still there. You know, there, there's always still. Uh, you can't erase the camera. You can't erase like the brighter bulbs. You know, mm-hmm. like every day, those kids would still have to um, wake up and notice that the light was brighter, and they yeah. and they go, "Oh, right, I'm in a documentary." You know, or um, even if they didn't notice it was brighter, that it would still change their behavior in some way, right? Exactly. You know, well, well, and they would also see the camera pointed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, if the camera wasn't in the room that day, yeah, right? yeah, 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 and like you know, when you're kind of living around a documentary, it's, it's, it's essentially I forget what it's called, but it's the idea of changing your you change the result by measuring it. Yeah, <laughs> and um, classic ethnographic 
problem. Yeah, I don't know what ethnographic means, dude. Uh, ethnography is like is, is is sort of the 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 attempt to study the world and like the way that systems and ecosystems and and things play out, particularly human ecosystems. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and one of the big problems is how to observe those things without altering them. Okay. Uh, on a very long lens. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's but, one. That's one of the classic solutions. Yeah. Yeah, honestly, like in Give Me Shelter, like there's so many moments where they're on like. Uh, uh, Give Me Shelter, just for anyone listening, is a 1970 Albert and David Maisel's film. Uh, that that's about um, takes place within the direct cinema. Yeah, it's it's, it's a direct work. It's a direct cinema film, although I actually think it has a lot in common with cinema verite because David and Albert Maisel's appear in the film, and it's very metatextual. Yeah, but because um, a lot of the film is actually shots of uh, the Rolling Stones watching the the in in the editing room the footage we're watching mm. um but uh, a good like quarter of the film is is that um but um essentially um uh the, the film uh, all leads up to the ultimate Altamont uh, free concert, which is essentially the anti Woodstock. It's where the hippie movement went bad, or so they say. Um, you know, the end of you know the sixties, um, and uh, essentially like for, for kind of the most intense moments, the camera is almost always hundreds of feet away from the action. It's it's on like thousand millimeter lenses on these, you know, and um, and you get the sense that the subjects have genuinely have no idea they're being filmed a lot of the time. Like, you have this mm-hmm. one shot of, like, a Hell's Angel just going, having some bad trip, and going crazy feet from Mick Jagger, and the guy's completely unaware that he's being watched, and, mm-hmm. and you go, oh my god, this is, this is, I'm staring into the void right now. And one problem, <laughs> uh, one problem with telephoto lenses is that they emphasize the distance, so you can have somebody filling up the screen, but you still get a sense of being very far away from them just because of the way it compresses space. The eye, long lenses. the brain knows. Exactly. Yeah. And one way that Gimme Shelter gets around that is when you have that knowledge that people who were directly involved in these events are watching it as you're watching it and reflecting mm-hmm. on it, that gives it a sense of emotional uh, immediacy. So yeah. Warndale doesn't use that. Warndale uses the more sort of classic idea of if you want to get personal you get right in there with your camera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the camera is literally like, it gets knocked about by the kids sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, and it's interesting that despite being in such a constricted area and, you know, these kids being, uh, I don't know if unstable is the right word or. Uh, I think it's fair to say. Yeah. Unstable. Yeah. That, that they're, they're prone to, you know, explode at, at a slight provocation that I never once did I notice them take, like acknowledge the camera that that even when they're in these throes of madness that they're not yeah. you know like like what the fuck are you staring at or you know what i mean like there there was never any acknowledgement or even just staring into the lens itself like well there's one intro, one of the more memorable characters in the movie is this maybe 10 11 year old boy who's like a very cute looking boy and very cute sounding boy who's constantly saying fuck off and lashing yeah. out and physically lashing out and apparently i mean that kid was not that much of a problem. Like, and he seems like the biggest troublemaker there easily. And apparently, he wasn't. He didn't stand out that much in that regard before, uh, before King and his crew okay. showed up. Mm. So, you know, they measure the results and they change. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that what we see in the film uh, isn't uh, pertinent to that method of caregiving, or is it misrepresentative of that kind of caregiving? Um, or 
misrepresentative of other factors that you could ethnographically measure. I mean, I'm not a man, I'm not an expert on any of those subjects that the film is, depict, is depicting on like a you know professional or academic level, so I'm I can't say. But what I can try to measure, um, I can get a sense. Okay, I feel like it's not misrepresenting it so totally that it makes the film an ethical wash. Um, but I can measure the way the film provokes you emotionally and the ideas that the film does reliably conjure that I can relate to without being an expert. Mm -hmm. Namely, staring death in the fucking face. <laughs> That's the, that should be the tagline on the poster. Yeah. Warrendale, stare death, death in the fucking face. The, 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 this is a good segue, actually. The actual, one of the taglines on the poster was something to the effect of uh, see the film that they didn't want you to see or see the film that the CBC didn't want you to see. Because Warrendale was made for <laughs> Sounds TV. Sounds like a tagline for a Cronenberg movie. Yeah, yeah, or a Michael Moore movie, right? <laughs> yeah. um, uh, and, and the story is that Alan King made this for the CBC, and it was even like edit, like I looked up the editor's credit, and the editor I don't think ever worked with Alan King outside this film, and was sort of just somebody who worked on TV projects, and, but I know that Alan King must have had a significant hand in editing, and the reason I know that is because the CBC demanded that the profanity be removed before broadcast, okay. and Alan King refused to do so, um, and so... Is very Canadian. Of is me. the is the powers that be don't want you to see this film a fair takeaway from that? I don't know, but but it they does don't want you to see the profanity in that film. I guess. Yeah, it does. It does bring up, uh, you know, brings us a little bit full circle to the idea of Canadians. So often, when they want to work creatively, they have to do it outside the boundaries of distribution, right? right? Um, I don't know the full history of how Warrendale became the. Yeah, it's never been a smash success, but it's certainly very well respected critically. And it won awards. Found its audience, and there's like, it's, yeah, and it's part of a box eclipse but box set from Criterion. And I think the main reason it essentially is that oh, it got yeah. it got to Cannes and it won an award. Yeah, um, like a pretty major. So award. you have to get into festivals. <laughs> so we three heathens is doomed. <laughs> yeah, the, the thing about the thing about um, Warrendale is that like essentially it was discovered by you know the. Essentially, like the the cinema verite Jean Renoir called Alan King a great artist on the basis of Warrendale. Exactly, and so that was that. Yeah, that's <laughs> like, it's just yeah. Renoir. You get the Renoir stand for approval. Everyone wants to see it, you know. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but uh, it's one of those films where you know films can kind of pick up steam, you know, like seemingly randomly, but there's always you know, usually hopefully a good reason. So We Three Humans is a sure success, is what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. All we need to do is get you know like Errol Morris to go. Yeah, this movie's okay. <laughs> I think okay, I remember Lewis Wad with that on uh, Active Killing when he called it like one of the most extraordinary right. films he'd ever seen. Hey, it worked. You yeah. know, the film, the film won all the Oscar. And, uh... <laughs> well, I mean, like, is it good enough to be considered like he's probably considered right now the most relevant documentary filmmaker working right now? You maybe can, yeah, probably. Like with the amount of uh, with the amount of attention and the amount of uh, social upheaval that those films cause, I would. I mean, I'm not saying his documentary career as a whole is more important than Herzog's or Morris's, but I would say right now, like, Act of Killing and The Look of Silence are... I mean, it's, hard to, it's hard to compare him to those two if he's only... Yeah, fuck made you, I'll do what I want. <laughs> no, I think uh, it's probably fair to say that I'd say he's one of the most, like, all-round, uh, like, prominent documentary filmmakers yeah. around right now. You know? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, you can call what I'm saying hyperbole, but you're wrong. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I, I don't know. I don't know what you're getting at. Well, where was I going with this? I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> no, no, no. I, we, uh, it, it all came from saying that. Um, um, well, how did it get its about, attention? Yeah, how yeah, did, exactly. How did it gain its and, acclaim? And is, yeah, you kind of need. Just gotta have the gatekeepers on your side. Yeah, well, it's, you know, sometimes the gatekeepers let like a film through. You know, yeah. like, like I mean, I'm sort of you know, I think of like a film like uh, you know, like even even something Paradiso kind of got its shot, right? You know, that Paradiso was my grad film. You know, a really shoddily made student film, and you know, I got into TIFF, and that was an example of the gatekeepers kind of like letting letting it through, right? And you know, obviously yeah. that's as far as it got, but. The thing is, things like that do happen. So imagine if you know, like Paradiso was much better, <laughs> and you know, it got to TIFF and like won an award, or like um, then it's like, oh, it's suddenly it's a success, just you know, just by kind of getting a bunch of votes from audience members. You know, yeah. like. But it seems like there, especially as the internet evolves, there there are more and more opportunities for for things like these to be discovered. You would think. I would yeah. say the opportunities mm-hmm. kind of shift where like, I say, I think there's almost yeah. like this equilibrium of doors closing and opening yeah. where like it's this constant kind of treadmill or a hamster wheel or a rat race of... <laughs> yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think I see more independent documentaries getting widespread notice these days. I, I probably see less. Like I think during the 60s and the 80s especially, um, you saw probably more documentaries get get seen. You know? I, think yeah. also, I also think there's a bit of a unfortunate trend these days of kind of treating documentaries like they should be a freely given thing yeah where yeah. like I, I still remember like there's this kind of documentary site it was like Documentary Hub or something where like just like tons of documentaries were put up and it was an act it was almost like a daily motion I, re- I remember that yeah, top yeah, documentaries yeah. and, yeah. When it, and when it was closed you had all these people on internet forums I frequented you know going oh you know like documentaries should be free it should be like a library free for everybody and I'm like well, that's a nice ideal. I would love for that, but, you know, like, give me, you know... Like, we, live, we live within a capitalist system. Yeah. <laughs> Petition for state funding, guys, yeah, and I will yeah. gladly get on board with that. Exactly. But like, to a certain extent, like, not everything can be made within... Even, yeah. even if there was, in, yeah. you know, uh, infinite funding from government institutions, like, mm-hmm. not everything could be made that way. So yeah. you still... People need, other, people need to pay for things. Yeah. And you know, the other, I feel very strongly about that. The other scary thing underlying all of this is we started talking about, like, every now and then, like, one of them gets through. The scary thing is, like, I mean, I think Warren Dills, again, I think it's straight, like, my leaf rating is going to be higher. Um, <laughs> but, but how many Warren Dales have we never seen, right? Yeah. Like, how yeah, many yeah. Warren Dales have, like, will just never. It's probably movies significantly better than Warren Dale that have come out of the Canadian documentary scene that. Just nobody was on board with their content, so a few hundred people have seen it, and that's all. Yeah. Yeah. I just, uh, it's kind of a bit shocking to think like all the, like all the kind of the non-starters. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, it's uh, a bit depressing, but you know, it's okay. So call Telefilm and tell them you want to see We Three Heathens. <laughs> <laughs> tell them you want to see the next thing the We Three Heathens guys make. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, there you go. Yeah. Cool. Well. Um, Talk about Vic Burger. Yeah, I was thinking we could do that, uh, but first we'll we'll sort of cap off the Warrendale discussion and um, give it our now. I would say now patented. For I mean the patent's pending, but you know we'll for for the, for the sake of argument we'll say that we have received our patent and you can it's no longer pending yeah. um, on the number of leafs 
that you would give this movie. Although I don't know if we could patent it if we're constantly changing the rating system. Are we gonna, and also, are we going to bounce up uh, the prime number? Yeah. So, oh, so, 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 calculus to figure out what you So, this one's out of forty-one. Yeah, that, and that's that's by design. Okay. We want our rating system to be completely arbitrary. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, out of forty-one leaves, how many leaves would you give this? Movie. I'd give it a solid 34 and 41. 34 leaves. Yeah. 35, but then they're all like really healthy, like juicy leaves. You know, they're, like they're, they're, just, they're still on the tree. Not my you're, you know, bullshit. You're, you're yeah. pulling a, a Greg Turkington here. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> he doesn't go over five bags of popcorn, but he adds in a Lincoln penny. Yeah, or... it leads for a tree uh, that's really like, it's really fertile for its syrup. <laughs> And six um, cups of soda. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I'm going to say, I don't know. I, I guess I, I responded m- more to a married couple mm-hmm. just because, again, I, re- I, I, re- I really latched onto the absurdity of there's, it. And, and there's a big personal hook there. Yeah. And, um, married couple is much funnier. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I, I don't know. But I think there is, I, I, I feel like they both, kind of captured their subjects in equally astonishing ways. But, um, yeah, just for, for whatever reason, a married couple sticks out more in my mind. So I'll give this one like 32 or 33, I guess. I little know. did he know that was a mathematically lower score. I don't know, man. It could be. <laughs> I've, uh, I've created a that's a great imper- imperfect system. <laughs> that's a great conceit. Yeah. Um, so hey, you know who edited for Greg Turkington, Vic Berger. Yeah, exactly. But um, Sorry. yeah, so we wanted to also discuss a, I guess you would say YouTube video artist um, by the name of Vic Berger. And I would say equally importantly, a Vine artist. Yeah, dude, his vines are <laughs> off the hook. Twitter artist. Uh, yeah. like, he's basically a multi-platform online artist. Yeah. It's just crazy. <laughs> yeah, just everything that this guy does is unreal, and I know that you guys are totally on board with Vic Burger, so I wanted to talk about him for a few minutes. Um, I guess the, the stuff of his that I've enjoyed the most is probably his editing of the GOP debates. <laughs> But yeah. and as they progress and they've gotten more refined in like his message, I guess you could say, <laughs> where where basically he like like he's basically just turned all of the GOP debates into Donald Trump Versus dismissing Jeb dismissing Jeb Bush yeah. and interrupting him with air horns, yeah. <laughs> and it is absolutely delightful to watch. You're gonna need a clip of this, like. Governor Bush. I want to. Yes. Yeah. You have said legal, illegal immigrants quote, broke the law, what does that mean to you, and how does that inform First, your I approach feel like to I, immigration reform? Great question. Jeff is a mess. You know, this, this, this is the standard operating procedure to disparage me. That's fine. I don't no, no, really... Excuse me, Jeb. Jeb is a big, fat mess. Okay, Governor uh, Bush, I'd like yeah, i got to respond to this. The reason why I should be president is... Great question. The reason why I should be president, I feel like I have to... Um... Excuse me. Two days ago, he said he would take his pants off and moon everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, and, and, and like, as he's, he's, his editing has got more refined on the, on the sound design as well, where, like, 
like the air horn will like interrupt a word and so he'll actually like make Jeb Bush stammer even though he didn't actually stammer <laughs> yeah, right. in real life and like it's so good yeah uh, but yeah so he's he's done that and then he's done um, I mean I started following him on Twitter like over a year ago I think Tim Heidecker retweeted something that he had done because he had just done the music video for for Greg Turkington for um, for Neil Hamburger's Endless Roll, yeah. and then um, so I started following him after that. And for the longest time, he was doing all of these vines and short videos on like Chubby Checker and Joe Perry and Mike Love and like all of these washed up all of these <laughs> oh, washed Mike up rockers. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's there's some, there's a couple of good vines of Mike Love, <laughs> and um, and like he'll just he'll just David Crosby. Of Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, allow like like welcomes people to ask him questions on Twitter, and so he'll ask him these really perverse questions, and he <laughs> responds, and it's just so he's just he I, I I came to enjoy his work through through him um, engaging with these with these aging and like often sexually predatory <laughs> rock stars, and then but but over time, uh, I guess he's gotten the most recognition publicly with with the stuff that he's been doing over the the republican political system system yeah, and especially jeb bush because uh, yeah. I, I first got into him because i saw the um, i saw the chris christie uh campaign announcement video where i still remember the moment where uh, he uses post zooms a lot post zooms is when you zoom in an image in digitally in post and uh, he kind of motion tracks things. Yeah. So he motion tracks like Chris Christie's hand <laughs> across the screen as he talks about using the Vito at home, imply, implying he's done something domestic abuse. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and like adds in punch sound effects and everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's just it's just so brilliant because I think I've never seen anyone use those exact formal tools for comedy, and I'm a huge kind of fan of, kind of formal. I really comedy. see somebody use them so extremely at all. Yeah, yeah, just I've, yeah, maybe like he's a high, kind of a high watermark in kind of formalist comedy. Like it's the thing. <laughs> I, I I mean like yeah, he he won't just because he won't just zoom in. He won't just do what like a, I call it a post zoom where you take footage you have and you digitally increase the size of a certain part of the image. Um, but he won't just. It's not just that he does post zooms. It's that he takes often standard definition footage and then zooms it even even further so it becomes a blurry almost mess of things that's true yeah. and 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 that becomes sort of a part of the statement which is interesting yeah but and I just th- the, the way that donald trump's face fills a screen yeah. Yeah. so flat and large and wide and yeah just, and he's got spittles flying off of his <laughs> off the side of his lip and it's just so repulsive yeah. and even more disgusting than he comes off in I, a normal frame. Yeah, and 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 the cool like the cool thing about it is like he's doing the stuff where it's really inspiring as an editor. And I mean, on one hand, you think, oh, how can I use that for not comedy? Yeah. <laughs> right? But I mean, it's a good example of you how comedy gives such a good platform to do some pretty avant-garde stuff. I mean, and you find a big audience. On the other hand, it's easier to find an audience, but it's harder to be taken seriously, right? Yeah. Like one of my favorite. Just to bounce off of this for a second, one of my favorite films of the last couple of decades is Wizard People, Dear Reader by Brad Neely, which is he just took the first Harry Potter movie and he wrote an entire audiobook. And so you just mute the movie and you play this audiobook that he reads in a voice not dissimilar to this. <laughs> and if you find that annoying, you 
and don't think you can find that funny, then you won't enjoy it. But what is this called? Wizard, Wizard dear People, reader. Dear Reader. Oh, dude, yeah. you'll... We, we, we have the file, we can give it to you, and like... But like, <laughs> cut that out. <laughs> but people, people don't look at this uh, movie really, even as a movie. Like, it's not listed on IMDb. I listed no. it, and I did a ballad a couple of years ago for like my favorite films of the two thousands, and that film was on it. And it's not listed on IMDb, so it couldn't be included in the final letterboxed ranking. Clearly, it doesn't have the rights to use the, not the he, Harry Potter it's not really considered a movie is the thing that's yeah. the thing like nobody considers it even though like he's taking a soundtrack that is intended for this image and so I mean and it got like a lot, there's a lot of fans of this thing right like it got a good amount of recognition and yeah. it's a new way to sort of to me it's like wow like you can make an entirely new movie just yeah. by and you don't have to worry about rights just by saying hey here's a soundtrack put it yeah, over yeah, this yeah. movie right and it takes almost like the Rift Tracks Mystery Science Theater 3000 idea like even further in the kind of art that you can make yeah. and so it finds widespread acceptance because it's so funny and it's comedy and you can instantly get what he's going for yeah. but I'm going to be taken seriously I would, I would one, one of these days I'll write a critical piece really going to bat for the canonization of uh, <laughs> those are people dear readers <laughs> But I think as far as Vic Burger goes, like mm-hmm. the, the thing is, that I find so like so interesting about him, or one of the things is that is that the way he, uh, I, th- I think, kind of Greg Turkington and, and uh, uh, Tim Heidrich and the whole Onsen group are great at this, is that they're so good at building characters, <laughs> like yeah. the Donald Trump and Jeb Bush characters in the Vic Burger movies. Are not Don, Donald Trump and yeah. Jeb Bush really? They're they're they're, they're the Vic Burger, Donald Trump and Jeb Bush, with yeah. their own completely like they have like the air horn. Yeah. <laughs> they have their own completely. And every time every time Trump comes in, we want Trump. <laughs> <laughs> like he always edits in that sound. That sound right. And, and just uh, just the way that like. I feel like when I, whenever I see Jeb Bush on actual like I, I I tend to watch the actual debates. Whenever I see Jeb Bush on screen, the actual debates these days, I see less of the actual Jeb Bush and I see more of like the sympathetic character who I yeah. feel sorry for. Yeah. Well, and, no, and and he um, he's a trained musician. He went to um, Berkeley, really? actually, I don't know that. and um, and so the music that he writes for his videos are, is great too because he like in the in the with the Jeb Bush stuff, it's always like this really somber, like like Trump is going like Jeb is a mess, <laughs> like, and it's just like this really sad like Charlie Brown type music over the over the yeah. bottom of it. And then, um, but then, but then um, in some of them, like especially the Chubby Checker stuff, it's like this really ominous like horror music because he's trying to create this image of a monster who's like attacking these. Unsus- just, unsuspecting middle-aged women on stage. I always assumed it was licensed music. That's awesome. No, no, he writes all that music. Wow. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, another good thing, um, one thing he uses a lot is vines. And, yeah. You know, I t- typically I write off vines as, like, most vines have no business not being YouTube videos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Sometimes it's nice because, like, it's like, oh, that's a funny little moment, and I can instantly watch it again if I want. But He uses mm-hmm. the looping nature yeah. so interestingly. He'll, he'll do a couple, like, he'll do his thing, he'll add a soundtrack, sometimes he'll add um, a little bit of sound design and maybe a couple of little zooms. Yeah. But for the most part, most of his vines depict just an actual moment and the big emphasis on, on that moment. But... And, or, and, or, and he might zoom in on it closer for a couple of shots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but he uses the fact that the vine loops over and over and over. So as you watch it over and over, that looping plus whatever 
accoutrements he's brought to the table um, guide you towards a certain uh, understanding of it. And so as it repeats, you find yourself chuckling and then laughing as you see what he's pointing out to you. Yeah, yeah. And he, and uh, like a lot of like the really popular vines are like perfectly edited. They're, they're exactly six seconds long so that the loop recurs on itself and, and like it's all self-contained. The audio, the audio, there's no hiccups in the audio or anything, but he deliberately will cut something really awkwardly just so that like it, it's off it's off putting and it's unsettling. Yeah. So yeah, that's one of the tools I find so interesting is that like I often have a hard time like after I've watched the vine like twice, I'll have a hard time figuring out what the beginning and the end is because yeah, yeah, yeah. it's so disjointed. Yeah. <laughs> They're all so just wacky. Yeah, the guy's the guy's like a, a I mean the most obvious thing to say is that he's a great editor and a great filmmaker. But I think he's just a great I mean He's turning into a really, really strong general satirist and political commentator yeah. um, across so many... Like, he did a thing on uh, Twitter where he pretended to be somebody saying, um, if Jeb, if if this tweet gets, like, what was it? Like, if, no, so, yeah, if so it, was one Bush, of, it was one of his vines, and so oh, it, was a, right. it was a vine where, where Jeb Bush was... was um, basically just listing the Apple products that he uses, yeah. and he goes, he goes, iPhone... MacBook Pro, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Apple Watch. And, and then so that just loops over and over yeah. in a vine. And then he says, if this hits a million views by the end of the weekend, I'm going to get a Jeb for Prez neck tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then ultimately... And Jeb uh, Bush retweets it. Re- yeah, retweets it. They're like, let's make this guy get a Jeb for Prez neck tattoo. This is a great idea. This is not something that is going to backfire on us at all. And then, and then it eventually hits a million views and... He pretends to get this this tattoo and tweets like, he, photos of him getting yeah, it. and then he like went offline for a while, and even like Tim Heidecker was like, like this guy's gone too far this time. This, this, is, this is this is completely beyond the realm of apparently Tim anything. helped make the fake video. Yeah, yeah, and then and then and then Tim was also tweeting as Vic Berger's father to say like. <laughs> My son has lost his job at the grocery <laughs> store, and like all this stuff, and like he's mentally unstable. You should Jeb Bush should never have like encouraged him. You to should answer Jeb Bush had better answer for this, and the campaign never responded. Yeah, <laughs> and so and like then the the camera like news crews went and interviewed the tattoo artist, and like it, it CNN covered it, like all these people. The CNN and then even, video I loved because yeah. they, they actually used Vic's kind of editing in it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just loved the moment when like they build up Vic as like this mysterious presence, and he's like, "Did he fake it? Didn't he?" And it just culminates in like, he, like the, the reporter goes, "Hey, Vic," and Vic comes up and he goes, "So was that all fake?" Yeah, yeah, that was all fake. Yeah. <laughs> no, I asked him like, "Where's the tattoo?" I was like, "What? Oh no, it was fake, dude." That was all fake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Vic Berger is totally awesome, and uh, you need to look him up. It's uh, V I C B E R G E R. Yeah. His Republican debate videos are a good place to start. Yeah. Uh, they're remarkably hard to keep track of because he like he edits them for like three different YouTube channels. Yeah. And, like, yeah. So I guess he's gotten hired by this this the company called Super Deluxe. Yeah. yeah. And so they've. I guess they were around like ten years ago, and then they started up again. Mm-hmm. And so he, like, he, he's a full time video editor now for them. Yeah, good for him. Yeah. And he edits for uh, on cinema at the cinema brilliantly. Yeah. Edited the masterpiece Jack of the So good. Anyway, we'll we'll get into uh, on cinema at the cinema and Decker versus Dracula in the next episode that we have you guys on. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, we're doing pigeonhole. Yeah, and. Um, 
I guess for now, this has been the Filmed in Canada podcast. And again, I've been joined by Will Ross and Devin Scott. And I uh, really appreciate you guys coming in and talking about your films as well as Alan King's documentaries from the 60s. Um, Thank you. Yeah. If you want to plug any of your online happenings you can find i uh write a lot of uh film criticism you can find either that writing um or links to it at www.sadhillcemetery.com mixture of new movies and old and i'm trying to write about every available kenji mizuguchi film right now for if you're interested in that and website also has very occasional writings by devin scott as well as links to all of our films awesome and you can find more information about the podcast at www.filmedincanada.net. Uh, you could also just type in filmedincanada.net without the www, and you'll still get there. Internet works like that. And um, I'm on Twitter at married to a fly. I'm on Twitter at sad hill will. I'm on Twitter at sad hill Devon. It's Devin with an A. Yes. And um, Married to a Fly, it's T-O, not the number two. That is all for now. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.